We've been studying through the book of Acts and witnessing the life of Paul, the apostle, a man who is called by Jesus himself. Paul was an enemy to the Christians for many years. He grew up in the Jewish faith, in the Jewish religion. And when he heard about Jesus now claiming to be the way, the truth, and the life to God, he said, this is foolishness. How can anyone become between man and God? And like many of the Jews, he rejected Christ at first and rejected the gospel and his teaching. So God got a hold of Saul as he was journeying to Damascus to capture more Christians and bring them to justice in his mind. The Lord spoke to him, appeared to him in this bright light shone about him. And he fell to his knees on the floor and it was so bright it was blinding. And a voice called out to him, Saul, Saul. And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, it is I, Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Isn't it hard to kick against the goads? And from that moment, Saul became a Christian. He became a believer. He knew that Jesus was now the one true living God. And he began to do ministry throughout the entire region of Judea, Samaria, the outermost parts of the world. And he began to spread this gospel of Christ. And that's what the book of Acts we've been reading about as Paul is having these mission trips where he'll go out far by boat, by walking. He would start churches throughout Greece and Asia, Asia Minor that is. And last week, it seems that as we were studying what Paul was doing is that everywhere he would go, he would leave either behind a riot because they hated the Christian view and what Paul's doctrine was teaching or a revival. You see, Saul, his name was changed to Paul. That was his, from Roman to a Greek name. And now known as Paul, he just left the Ephesians as there was this huge riot over him. They, they heard his doctrine and they were rioting there in the temple of the goddess of Diana. And the Lord sovereignly allowed him to get out of there and to escape leaving also two believers behind to start the church of Ephesus. And it's, this is where we pick up in Paul's missionary journeys in Acts chapter 20. So let's begin now in Acts chapter 20, verse 1. It says, After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. So in verse 1, it's referring again to that riot that took place there in Ephesus. And I, I can imagine that having personally seen this riot place, this big temple, this huge auditorium where it, it must have been, in order to be called a riot, a huge ordeal. But Paul now he leaves, he calls the disciples to himself, he embraces them and goes to Macedonia. 
Now, in Macedonia, Paul helped establish a few well-known churches that we know as the Philippians, the Thessalonians, and the Bereans. That's all there in Macedonia. Now, in verse 2, it says, Now, when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece. And as you know, Greece was home to the Corinthians, the Corinthian church, and we see Paul doing discipleship there also. I remember having also visited Greece and the, the Corinthian church. My personal experience when we got off that plane, we were so tired uh, from coming from Israel. And the first thing they did was put us on a bus and said, okay, we're going to take you to the Corinthian church now. And everyone was so tired. And this poor tour guide lady with her, her Greek accent, uh, she constantly said, it is what it is. And we were just like, yeah, we're all tired, lady. <laughs> just tell us. I got to go back another day uh, when I wasn't so tired and really enjoy uh, the Corinthian church there. But it's still there to this day. You could see the ruins, the remains of it. And we see how our Bible has history just embedded all throughout. But as Paul was there in Greece, he stayed there. It says in verse 3, And stayed three months, and when the Jews plotted against him, as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So here now the Jews are still plotting against Paul. Paul had many enemies due to his bold faith. But what we see is he was a man who was driven. Many times Paul would become persecuted, attacked. When Paul would preach the gospel, earlier we read how they took him outside of the city and they stoned him. And then when the apostles had prayed over him, he restored back to life. And the first thing he does is says, I want to go back into that city that they stoned me at and go preach the gospel. How do you stop a man who's so driven? Only the Holy Spirit was able to do that, it seems, as constantly as you read the book of Acts. It says, we were going to journey this way, but the Holy Spirit forbid us. Not man, but the Holy Spirit had to intervene in Paul's life. And sometimes that's the way I feel, is sometimes I get so excited about an adventure or some sort of task in ministry, and I'm going gung-ho, for the Lord, because I'm like, yes, Lord, this is your will. And then God has to stop me somehow, some way or, or another. In Paul's life, many times he would end up getting sick. In verse four, it says, And Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia. That is Asia Minor. That's not the, the Asia that we think of, the big Asia. This is Asia Minor. Also, Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. Uh, if you guys ever looking for good baby names, you want to recommend some baby names right here? Secundus, Gaius, Tychicus, all those above. Um, but all these different men from Asia Minor from Thessalonica, from Derby, Galatia. And what I'm seeing here is how the Holy Spirit is able to bring these men from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different walks of life together. And that's the power of the Holy Spirit, how he brings that family to you. It says, These men going ahead waited for us at Troas. 
But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Now, as Paul is journeying, he, he will bring up this days of unleavened bread. This is referring to the Passover holiday, which the Jews still celebrate to this day. And on trying to find out whether Paul himself celebrated this holiday himself, I, I, I find that there's actually different views on whether Paul or not really celebrated the Passover holiday himself. And it's quite interesting because us being Gentiles, meaning that we're not Jewish, uh, we don't celebrate the Passover holiday. We celebrate Easter. And as you dive into Easter, with the meaning of it, of we celebrate the life, the resurrection of Christ, where it came from, you'll find in church history that the apostles actually didn't practice Easter. Now, concerning this Passover holiday, it's celebrated the same week as Easter. But when you look at the apostles' practices, you notice they did not celebrate Easter, but they did oftentimes celebrate Passover. Now, the Bible establishes the date of Passover was the 14th of Nisan. That was the Jewish months. And early Christians continued the observation as a memorial of Christ's death. And then eventually beginning to celebrate this festival on Sunday in honor of Christ's resurrection. And there's a controversy all the way from back then, from the early church times, that erupted. There was an emperor named Constantine who there, living amongst a, a bunch of pagan cultures, had this vision of, of a goal of a fiery cross and began to create all these Christian churches. But as he was doing this, he mixed with the Christian churches a lot of pagan practices. And Constantine, he, he's kind of a weird character as you study history. It's, this is not in the Bible, but he's actually in history as starting all these churches, but his mom had a, a lot of influence on him. And from him, we have a, a lot of strange traditions. Eventually, he required that all Christians adopt this Sunday celebration of the resurrection of Christ. And then in the Council of Nicaea, those who continued observing the Passover and the Seventh-day Sabbath, which is on Saturdays, they were branded as heretics. So again, this is Constantine doing this, not, not God, not the, the Holy Spirit making these rules. But God used this, this. Eventually, the biblical Passover was changed to Easter. And that name, literally, it comes from the Teutonic goddess of the spring. This is pagan cultures. And the Passover lamb that the Jews would usually eat was replaced by an Easter ham. And the Jews, they, they don't eat pork, so this was an affront to the Jews. Now, so what does that mean? Does that mean, oh, wait, are, are we not supposed to celebrate Easter then? Because you're, you're making it sound like Easter is, is really bad right now, Salvador. <laughs> Let me uh, 
kind of put us at ease when it comes to celebrating Easter and even Christmas, because when you look into Christmas uh, origins, it also comes from pagan practices. But Paul says this in Romans chapter 14, verses 5 through 6. He says this. I'll read it to you. You don't have to turn there. It says, In the same way, some think one day is more holy than another day, while others think every day is alike. You should each be fully convinced that whichever day you choose is acceptable. Those who worship the Lord on a special day do it to honor him. And those who eat any kind of food do so to honor the Lord, since they give thanks to God before eating. And those who refuse to eat certain foods also want to please the Lord and give thanks to God. So basically saying every day is supposed to be a day that's to the Lord. There's been some traditions that we have adopted throughout history. And here in the United States of America, we celebrate Easter on Sunday. We have church on Sunday. And we don't get caught up in the legalism that some people do, that some people teach. So we have the privilege of being able to worship and thank God on a specific day, on a Sunday, for his resurrection. And when Christmas comes this year, there's going to be, a, Lord willing, a, a Christmas tree in this house. So we don't have anything against Christmas trees or things of that nature. We're free in Christ. Now, as Paul is journeying, we continue in his track now to Troas. Look at verse 7. Now, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Okay, now in verse 7, what do you notice? What day are they meeting on at the very beginning of verse 7? the first day of the week, right? A Sunday. This is when the apostles are getting together on Sunday. And it's different than the Sabbath, which is on Saturdays. They're getting together, and what are they doing? They're breaking bread. That's communion. And how fitting is it that we're teaching a little bit on communion this morning, and we are going to have communion today. That was the, the breaking of the bread was to remind themselves of what Jesus did on the cross for them. Jesus, well, I don't want to get too much into our communion time, but he broke the bread and symbol of his body being broken. And the, the wine that was poured out was symbolic of the blood that Jesus set, shed for the sins of the world. So here now on the first day of the week, that is Sunday. So if you ever hear a Seventh-day Adventist, which is another type of Christian, saying, hey, you guys are wrong for celebrating uh, or having church on Sundays. It's only supposed to be done on Saturdays. Uh, you could tell them, well, look at uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 7. What does it say they're doing on the first day of the week? And Paul here is giving them now a long sermon. It says he spoke to them, continued his message until midnight. So being that as it is today, we will continue this message till 12 a.m. tonight. So get your coffee ready. I'm just kidding. We're not going that long. But Paul gave them a long sermon because he would be leaving them again soon and he wanted to make sure that he gave them as much counsel as they needed, as was necessary. And I, I'm reminded that we should be training ourselves to 
endure long conversation of God. Long topics of uh, taking in just content of, of the Holy Spirit that he wants to, to give us. In today's day and age, we're so used to just the quick uh, little daily devotional that just comes up and it's a two-minute devotion, three-minute devotion. We try to get, oh, look at I saw a meme today with, you know, a scripture on it, a little picture today that encouraged me in the Lord. And then the rest 24 hours of the day were just spent on just whatever, carnality, things that aren't, might not even necessarily be bad, but it's just not the Holy Spirit entering into us. We're to meditate on the word, meaning to be thinking about the word. And as we're living this life, meditation and what it breeds is understanding of what the Bible teaches. So Paul gave him this long sermon. One of the things, I'll say this real quick about, I always talk about this podcast we just started. Um, they're long, two and a half hours usually around, around that time. And, and the reason being this, because the most important thing is when I'm having a conversation with these guests that I bring in to interview with them, I want that to be the most important thing. I, I, I could care less if we lose the footage and that podcast never goes out on the internet. What is most important to me is the conversation I have with that person that is there in front of me, who God brings. And because of this, I, wa I want to have a long conversation with my friend. My, inter my interviewee that I bring in. So that way they can, we can develop these thoughts, these ideas, and have long thought. I digress. Look at verse 8. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. So imagine it's a late night service. Got a bunch of smelly disciples crammed up in the upper room. They got some lights in there, these, these candles and lighting. And poor sleepy Eutychus, he, he sits near the, the edge of the window, probably not thinking he was going to fall asleep because he probably wouldn't have sat there. He's a young man, and as Paul is continuing in his sermon, and I'm sure the Holy Spirit was using Paul greatly, suddenly the, the, the sleep overcame him. I think we have a sleepy Eutychus at least once a week in, in service. <laughs> but thank God he doesn't let us fall out of the windows. So as Sleepy Eutychus is there in that crowded room. Suddenly he falls out of the window and then boom. And then he was taken up dead. This is, he's falling all the way from a third story window. And when he falls and hits that ground, it, it kills this young man. And look at verse 10. But Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Now, this young man was dead. We just clearly read that. But Paul had said this in faith. The young man is living. Paul's faith right here, it reminds me of the prophet Elijah. Elijah was 
a prophet in the Old Testament, who was also journeying, much like Paul, doing the Lord's work, and he came across this woman who would invite her into her family's home and she would take care of, she'd provide for him a, a little place to stay so that when he would journey, he'd be able to take some rest there. And then one time when Elijah had come down to this family, the woman was there and she ran to him because her son had died. He recently got sick and had passed away and then Elijah shows up. You can read about this in 1 Kings chapter 17. I'm going to read a little bit from, from 1 Kings chapter 17. In verse 18, this woman says to Elijah, O man of God, what have you done to me? Have you come here to point out my sins and to kill my son? But Elijah replied, Give me your son. And he took the child's body from her arms, carried him up the stairs to the room where he was staying, and laid the body on the bed. Then Elijah cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, why have you brought tragedy to this widow who has opened her home to me, causing her son to die? And he stretched himself out over the child three times and cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, please let this child's life return to him. And the Lord heard Elijah's prayer and the life of the child returned and he revived. You see that same God who revived this child and through Elijah is the same God that Paul knew. Elijah had laid himself out over this, this child of this widow and began to pray. And he had confidence, oh Lord my God, in that same manner, Paul did this. In verse 11 now, it says, Now when he had come up, had broken bread and eaten, and talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. Hmm. In verse 12, And they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. So at this point now, Paul prays over the young man, brings him up, and his life is restored in him. They brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. See, they're experiencing how awesome their God was and is. And now as they're there just celebrating this this young man coming back to life, Paul is now going to continue on now in his journey. In verse 11, after they had broken bread, they had that communion. When Paul was departing, he, where he's leaving right here is Troas. Now, here's a little reference for you on, on verse 11. You could write 2 Timothy 4.13 to, to refer to, to this verse. Because in 2 Timothy 4.13, Paul also writes about the city of Troas and says that he left his books and his coat there. And he's writing to Timothy. He says, when you come, 
Be sure to bring the coat I left with Carpus at Troas. Also bring my books and especially my papers. See, Paul, when he's writing to Timothy, he's going to be in jail. And he tells him, reminds him, hey, I left my coat in Troas. Also bring the books and my papers. And these were the books that he would use to study God. In verse 13, then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Asos, there intending to take Paul on board, for so he had given them orders, intending himself to go on foot. And when he had met us at Asos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. We sailed from there and the next day came opposite of Chios. The following day we arrived at Samos and stayed at Trogrillium. The next day we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now you see Paul, again, he's, he's journeying quickly and because he knew that if he was to stop by Ephesus, the brethren would perhaps talk to him there for some time, and he knew he was on a mission. He was trying to get back to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost, the second feast that was highly celebrated by the Jews. And again, there is this disagreement among certain Bible teachers of whether Paul kept this Jewish feast to himself or not. But what is clear is that he respected the feast. He was going there to be there. In verse 17, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know, from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. So Paul here, he's reminding the brethren of his own conduct. He called for the leaders of this church in Ephesus. And he began to describe to them, look, I've been serving the Lord in all humility. He reminded them that his conduct was without accusation. Remember, Paul was a tent maker. He didn't live off the church. That with tears and trials, he served them. And how the Jews were constantly coming against him. There were enemies coming against him. And he's reminding them of the love that he had for them. In verse 20, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to the Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus. And now see, I now go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. See, Paul, he is preparing his disciples. He had insight that God was going to allow him to go through things that were very trying and things that were going to cause suffering in his life. 
So he began to remind them of what he was called to. You see, Paul, at the end of his life, would be placed in what is known as the Mamertine Prison. It's there in Rome. And you could visit it to this day. Now, it's not certain how long he would be in this Mamertine Prison, but it was likely that he was there a few years before he was beheaded on the Ostian Road in Rome, according to tradition. Now, in this cell, in this prison, it, it was down in the basement of this stone type of cavern that was carved out. And they would drop the prisoners right in this hole, right down the middle. Hopefully they wouldn't break their ankle on the way down. They would drop down their food. They didn't have any type of bathroom. So as Paul was in there for years, just awaiting to be beheaded, it was then when he would write to Timothy, the books that we have of First and Second Timothy, encouraging Timothy to fight the good fight. And when I look at Paul, I see a man who was strong in the Lord, a man who was determined to suffer for, for Christ. Do you remember when God called Saul to be now a, a vessel of his? He sent Ananias to go to Saul to remove the scale off of Saul's eyes. And Ananias was saying, God, like, I'm not going go to go to Saul. That guy, he's been killing all the Christians. Are you crazy? And God told Ananias, no, he's a chosen vessel of mine, this Saul, to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And then God said this of Paul. He said, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, oftentimes, when a person is being called, I don't try to tell them how many things that they're going to suffer for the sake of Christ many times. Many times I share with people about the goodness of God and the peace, the joy. But there's also a, another truth of the Christian life that it comes with suffering. That as Christians, we will suffer. In this life, we will have many tribulations, Jesus taught us. So, I would be wrong to tell you guys that if you dedicate your life and soul completely to Jesus and completely submit to him that things are just going to be easy and good for you. Because they're not. And many times there are disappointments and trials and struggles that we have to endure, that God allows in our life so that we can become something that is beyond what we are. I thank God that I'm not what I was yesterday. And I know that today I'm a sinner. And I know that I'm not perfect, and I know that I'm still... I fail. But I know that God is doing a work in my life. So Saul, who became Paul, was told by God of the many things that he would suffer. 
And now he's describing this to the Ephesian elders in the church there. And he's saying, look, I'm going to go to Jerusalem because God is calling me to preach the gospel there, to move forward in the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit is showing me that chains and tribulations await me. But look at verse 24. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. See, Paul is unmoved, he's unselfish, he's unceasing, he's serving and he's testifying. Sometimes we get so moved in our life when we're surprised by situations that are not pleasant. So I encourage us to expect the unexpected in our life as a believer. Expect for problems to arise, then we won't be so moved by them when they are arriving. When trials do come, none of these things will move us when we're founded on Christ. We need to be unselfish as Paul was. He didn't count his own life dear to himself, but he cared more about the souls and lives of those people he wanted to preach to. And he didn't stop when things got hard. He wanted to finish his race. He was unceasing. The Bible teaches us to not grow weary while doing good, for in due time you will reap a harvest. And for us who have been pouring into others' lives, who have been praying for your friends, your family members, children, co-workers, don't grow weary in doing good, for in due season you'll reap harvest. And Paul was serving the ministry that God had given him, not man, but God, to testify of the gospel. So he's spreading the word, spreading this truth. I'm reminded of what he wrote to Timothy there in the Mamertine prison, Knowing this was his last letter that he would be probably writing out, and this is, according to tradition, second, the books of First and Second Timothy, this is Paul's famous last words. And he's writing now to his son in the faith. In Second Timothy chapter four, verse six through eight, he says this: "For I am already being poured out as a drink offering." And the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. See, Paul knew what it was awaiting him there in Rome. But can we say that in our lives? Can we say that we've been fighting the good fight? That we are finishing our race? That we've kept the faith? I know there's many times that instead of fighting 
I've ran. That instead of being whole and complete in the work that God has assigned to me, I don't finish things. In times when I need to have faith, there's fear and and doubt. But I can ask that God would help me with all of these things, that I might grow in all of these things, so that one day when I, when I look back at my life, I can say I have fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. And then we look toward an eternal reward, something that cannot be taken away, something that this earth will not be able to consume. You see, we look at our life and the lifespan we have, it's really small in comparison to eternity. And we put so much emphasis on things that are passing away, things that are temporary, things that won't have eternal value. You see, God isn't going to reward us for the type of of job we work. God isn't going to reward us for the person that we we marry. He's not going to reward us for the things we own. All those things will fade away, but what God will reward us for is what we did while we were working. It's for how we treated our husbands, our wives, our children, how we love them. God will reward us for when we shared about him. And these are the things that have eternal value. Sometimes we think that this life is so much more important than it really is on the things that are vanishing away. But if we could see what was truly important every day of our lives and take evaluation of what God wanted us to focus on, I'm sure there'd be a lot of things that we might change in our heart, our mind. So I'm here with you guys this morning to say, I fail a lot, that I don't get it right, that I'm distracted by the things of this world, but I am striving and I encourage all of us to seek those things that God has called us to where God has given you a specific and awesome and special adventure for your life specifically. doesn't matter how young, how old you are. God has a plan for you and he loves you and he wants you to fill this purpose in your life. He wants you to do it so much that he even allowed his son to die for your sins that you might fulfill this, that he could find joy in you. And this is what Paul was reaching toward. He says in verse 25, And indeed now I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. You see, Paul, like the prophet Ezekiel, was a good watchman for his flock. In Ezekiel chapter 33, Ezekiel is told by God to be a good watchman, to warn the people of the enemy that was coming. 
and he told Ezekiel that if he doesn't warn the people of Israel of the enemy of sin, of death that was to come, then their blood would be on his hands. But if he did warn them and told them the truth, then the guilt would be on their own hands and not on Ezekiel's. And Paul takes that same message and says, I am innocent of the blood of all men. And then in verse 27, he says, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And that's what I must aim for as a Bible teacher. I must declare the whole counsel of God. And that's why the approach that here at Redeemed Church that we take is to go through the Bible, to teach it line upon line. And this is known as expository teaching. From time to time, I, I will teach a topical sermon, which is I present a topic like faith and I give us a whole sermon about faith. Or I present a sermon on how to overcome sin and we spend some time just talking about things of overcoming sin. But the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us the whole counsel of God. So that's why I use the systematic teaching of teaching book by book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And it's balanced and it's complete. You see, here's another beauty of, of teaching it line upon line, is on certain topics, when they come up, the people who are here will know that I didn't pick the topic out because I know someone is, is struggling in that area but it's just right, it's right here in the text. You see, I'm not trying to call anybody out right now. But also, as I go through the entire Bible, eventually all these different topics will come up and the whole counsel of God will be taught. In verse 28, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. You see, the leaders was, were being exhorted to watch out for their own walk and for those underneath them. And Paul says that the Holy Spirit is the one who does the anointing of the leaders, not man. And Paul was there to shepherd this church that was given to him. You see, this shepherding, what do shepherds do? They lead the sheep, right? They feed them, they tend them, they teach them, they protect them when enemies come. But God has purchased the flock. It is not the pastor or the leader's personal flock but it is, it is that leader, that pastor's privilege to love and care for them, to teach them. In verse 29, he says, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things 
to draw away the disciples after themselves. You see, this is what I get from Paul is he was very upset with false prophets and improper doctrine. And I find myself in that same place many times. I am being transparent with you guys this morning. When I see improper doctrine in Christian churches that are well known, one of my favorite worship groups is Bethel Church, Bethel Worship. And I love the worship music they come out with. But then when I look at some of the doctrines they teach, I see it, it can be confusing to the flock. That it's, some of it isn't based on scripture. When I hear a, a, of men from this church getting a, a new translation of the Bible from an angel, this angel of love, if you guys can look this up and and they write a new translation of the Bible from this angel that gave them this, it, it, it kind of, it makes me frightened that people would be following this doctrine. When I hear of other main pastors and teachers that are on TV and on YouTube, like Todd White doing fire tunnels that are, get people really emotionally moved, I have to warn my flock of these things. When I hear of people putting strict regulations on believers, such as baptism is necessary for salvation, I warn people, look, God has given us freedom from the law. Now we strive after holiness. Now, I myself know that I'm a man that can be flawed and I could be wrong, so that's why I always encourage people, look, go do the research for yourself. Don't believe what I'm saying. Go look it up. And if I am wrong for trying to protect you guys from things that are false, um, please come show me that, that I'm wrong. I'm willing to listen. But also, too, understand my heart is to protect the sheep. In verse 31, he says, Therefore, watch... And remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. And again, we see the love of Paul here as a shepherd. In verse 32, So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who were sanctified. What does he call these Ephesian leaders? Him being an overseer and a discipler to them, he calls them brethren. He puts them at the same level that he's at. And I love that about Paul. And he commends them to God. And that word commend, it's when you praise someone, you, when you recommend them. He commends them to God of the word of his grace, the scriptures that teach of his grace. And why? So that they can mature in the Lord in their walk, so that they can grow and strengthen spiritually to an inheritance that's eternal for those who are sanctified. 
And that word sanctification, it, it means this, this set-apartness. It means holiness. Set apart for who or for what? For God and for his purposes. Verse 33. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. See, again, we have right here Paul's tent-making ministry. Paul worked a secular job in which he would make tents for people for a profit. And so that way he wouldn't have to live supported by the church, but that he would be able to be able to actually help the church. Now, some men are called to full-time ministry, and that's a blessing when they do that. And Paul even said that you shouldn't muzzle an ox as it treads the grain, meaning that if there's a pastor who is leading a church and needs to be supported, that the church should support him. But Paul himself said, look, I'm a tent maker, and I'm going to support so that I could pour into the ministry. He said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Sometimes we're selfish, but we need to look after the poor. Sometimes we need to use discernment. Usually if a poor person comes along my way and they're asking for money, I'll try to offer them food instead. I'll be like, hey, you want, you want a meal? I'll, I'll go and pr- provide for a meal. We need to use wisdom and discernment, but also hospitality. And then in verse 36, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all.
Let's remember this as we partake of the cup. Amazing love, how can it be? You, my king, would die for me. Amazing love, I know it's true. And it's my joy to honor you in all I Father, we thank you, Lord. Bless this Sunday. May we continue, to, Father, just to worship you in our, with our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. But your mercy brought new life, and in your loving kindness, raised me up with Christ and made me righteous. You have brought me back with the riches of your amazing grace and relentless love. I made a life forever with your life forever. By your grace, I'm saved. By your grace, I'm saved. You have brought me back with the riches of your amazing grace. And relentless love I made a lie Forever with your lie Forever by your grace I'm saved By your grace I'm saved Amen. Be blessed this week. Love you guys. God bless.